Let me open in prayer and we'll get into Mark 6. Father, help us this morning to slow down, stop the chatter in our mind and the distractions and our hurried thoughts. Stop us and this morning let us bathe in your word. Enjoy the message and the teaching you have for us, but much further, help us to take it deep into our life that it makes change. God, make us continually in the men and women that we should be. And again, we thank you for your constant care for us and your compassion as you show your love towards us in growing us and keeping us close to you. We love you and thank you in Jesus. Amen. To Mark 6, okay? So, we return back to the book of Mark. And you notice it's not been sequential. Well, unfortunately, it looked a little sequential. Today's not sequential. We're not trying to do anything sequential because I've only got four weeks. So, the goal I have is to cover sections that might not come off the page that much as in color or understanding. Sometimes you might come away going, what is happening? What's going on? So I want to go a little deeper in one text this morning. So our first week we covered a quick overview of Mark, gave a little introduction, who the writer is, the timing, the target audience. We covered the calling of the two brother pairs, both all fishermen, which will play in a little bit today, by their rabbi Jesus. We noted that their Response to the call was immediate. They dropped everything. They dropped their nets. Two brother pair not only dropped their nets, but left dad in the boat. Okay? So it was a complete career and life change. Our second week drove more deeply into the cost of discipleship, what these men actually went through at the cost level. We also talked something that I think we don't think enough about. We talk about the cost of discipleship but we don't talk about the cost of non-discipleship. What is the cost for someone who doesn't follow after Jesus? So this week I want to move to a section, as I said before, does not come off the page clearly as one would think. So let's go to our text. Is, let's read it, Mark 6, 45 through 52. It's a familiar text. But then again, it also has some pieces that seem to have some missing holes. Starts verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out of the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him, and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves. 
but their hearts were hardened. Does that sound like something that's missing some pieces? Anyway, first place we've got to go here is we've really got to put this text in the context. I know, it's really rough when you're actually pulling something out. You're leaving a lot of the context out. So anyway, let's take a look at it. Really what happens is the day starts out and the apostles are returning from ministry from the reports that to Jesus about all that happened. Basically, verse 30 says, they reported that they had done and taught. But right after that, Jesus said to them in verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. It was to be a time of refreshment and recovery, a time to be alone with Jesus. So they loaded up in the boat and headed out, but the crowd watched the direction that they were heading and followed along with them on the land. So by the time they reached the desolate place, the crowd was already there. When they came ashore, the crowd was there, and Jesus had compassion on them and taught and healed the sick. Underscore the word compassion. Now let's take a look at this. This is really, can be a series you call the lessons to be learned, or as this one is entitled, the lessons or the teaching of the storm. First lesson we need to look at, especially with this point in context, think about it. When we are tired and wanting to get away, but someone or something comes with great need, what's your attitude and your response Are you short and frustrated that they are taking time away from your rest? Come on, I need a break, might be inside your brain. Can't you come another time? Can't this wait? So what is your attitude and response when you're interrupted? Look at Jesus' response. It's literally a response that we should be looking at and focus on continually in our daily lives. Notice that the text stated that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you have compassion on others? Look back on verse 31 towards the end. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure to eat. This is what's happening with these disciples. It's been constant ministry. They haven't even had time to eat which can really heighten you. What's the word we use today? I haven't eaten anything, so I'm a little hangry, which took me a little bit to go, what did you say? I mean, that's, the word we use in English is angry. Oh, hey, hungry and cute. But that does not give us any cause to have an attitude shift, to always be open for the opportunity to minister. Do you live as if you're inconvenienced by the interruptions of others? What about when things don't go your way that you have planned? They did not plan to have the crowd follow, but they did. And here again is a ministry opportunity. Again, it's a time for Jesus to teach his disciples and us. It gets late. The disciples come to Jesus requesting that he send the crowd away so that they can eat. Jesus' response is not what they were expecting. Have you ever looked at this text and gone, that's a strange response. Take a look at verse 37. Here's Jesus' reply. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Now what has this done? The first thing they attempt is a human response and say that they don't have enough money to buy bread for everyone. 
it never occurred to them to turn back to Jesus and have him provide food. His words were intended to test the level of their faith while also forcing them to acknowledge that they had no human solution to the problem. Here's another angle that I read. The possibility that Jesus might create the necessary food never crossed their minds. They were so focused on the problem and the need to find a human solution that they failed to consider the divine power of the Lord. Look at yourself. When something comes up, where do you look? To Jesus or to yourself? You trying to find a human solution? Well, wait a minute. I'm at work. What's Jesus got to do with me at work? I mean, come on. I work in computers. There weren't computers back in those days. You hit a problem. Where do you go? To Jesus. First. And ask him to give you wisdom and insight. Calm your thoughts. Rest on Jesus. So we all know the event. We know what's coming up. The boys' lunch was found consisting of five crackers or biscuits and two pickled fish. Yum. (laughs) Not a fish person, sorry. You know, it's a fair lunch for a boy, but it's definitely not good for a crowd of adults. (laughs) Especially when you get down to the bottom number, you got 5,000 men. That's not including the women and children. So you're talking about pickled fish and a biscuit. Yum. It's not enough. But look at verse 42, and they all ate and were satisfied. They were full. But the lesson for the disciples must come because verse 43, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. Jesus is asking the men, men, do you see that I alone can satisfy your needs, not through human wisdom or planning, but I alone These men were placed in a situation that could never have been solved with a human answer. There was nothing there for them to use. Notice notice the fact they were in a desolate place. Not fact that you might say it's a wilderness or a desert area. It's just non-populated. It's not a place you just go down and you get, well, if it's Sunday, you can't go to Chick-fil-A, so you go somewhere else, right? There's no place to go. You can't go to Publix. You can't go buy anything. And plus, the little towns are not going to have enough food for thousands. Jesus was the only answer. Boys' lunch was not going to meet the need of the crowd that size. You know what? I am really thankful that God puts situations where it just buries us and we've got no place to go. It forces us into the face of Jesus. We need to remember and live this out each and every day in all the events of our life. You know, you might want to repeat to yourself, it's not about me. Because we're very me-centric. Now let's look at our text. Verse 45, And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Immediately he made. This is a very strong word. Strong word in the Greek that literally is not necessarily that he's shoving him into the boat, but you might as well think that way. He's so pressing upon them the urgent need to move along, to get into the boat. 
And you're kind of weirded out because you remember you start out with the first part of the day and it says, and immediately Jesus wants them to what? Get into the boat and go to a decibel place to get away. And now you got the backside and you're kind of confused going, wait a minute, now he's immediately getting in the boat and get out of here. So where are we going? What's the need to get them out? We're not told in Mark, but we do get an insight in John 6.15 where John brings up the facts about the crowd perceiving them that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus did not want the disciples to be part of this thought. As one quoted, Jesus acted decisively to get the disciples away from the scene lest they should be what? Involved in the plot. The temptation. You thought the temptation in the wilderness was going to be enough. No. Remember it says, and I love the statement, it says Satan departed for a season. Just a time. He'll be back. Coming at different angles. One angle is now the people, hey, they got this is going to be a great king because we're never going to be short on food. This is the perfect guy to have. We've got to have him. Nope. Jesus didn't come to feed by food necessarily. He came to what? Feed the soul to save sinners. While Jesus is on the mountain, the disciples encounter a great obstacle in their travel. Now remember, they're alone on the boat. They don't have their rabbi Jesus. Verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Notice, the boat was out on the sea. There's some weird critics that are out there sitting there saying, well, really what's happening is Jesus is on the shore, and they're really close to the shore. No. It's very specific. They're on the sea. Now, we don't know where in relation, some will actually say, in some translations, say they're in the middle. We don't really have an understanding that it's the middle of this sea. The key point is that Jesus knew what they were going. You know, this is the greatest amount of comfort that I have. They're in the middle of great turmoil. A horrible event is going on. And Jesus is fully aware. Now, how many times, don't raise your hand. How many times have you thought, does God even know what's going on in my life? That's what's happening? Is he even aware that I'm going through this? Go back to Mark. He's not with them. He's away from them at night. And he's fully aware that they are rowing hard against the wind. Oh, he's aware, and he will meet you where your need is. So what was really occurring, the headwind, we talked about before that the lake, literally it's a lake, Lake Gennesaret, there's other kinds of names for this. It creates instantaneous storms. These storms are huge. We've already gone through the scene, and if we've been reading through the Word, you've already had the time where Jesus is asleep in the boat, and they have this, and they, these fishermen, these men are extremely aware that this sea is dangerous, and they are convinced they are going to die. And again, they wake Jesus up highly indignantly and ask him a, a very uncaring question. Do you not care that we die? 
by a word. No. Jesus is fully aware. So again, another lesson. No matter what's occurring in and around our lives, Jesus is fully aware of every aspect of our lives. He was not in the boat, but away in the mountain, but he knew. And I love this. Hebrews 4.13. Memorize this one if you get the need to feed this issue in your life. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Remember Psalm 139? David went through that freak thing where he's like, God is omniscient and omnipresent. That God is what? Omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. And he's omnipresent. He's always present. He's always here. That's a real strong key to understand God's not missing a beat on anything happening in our life. With that, Jesus knew exactly where they were and went to them. I like that aspect too. Not only did he know what's going on, he also knew where they were going through this. And he what? Went. He didn't meander all over the lake going, where'd the guy come on? Hey guys, guys, you know, didn't have the GPS locator on the guys in the boat. No. He knew. And he went to them. Look at verse 48, last part. And... About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by. Fourth watch was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's a great time. Kind of gives you an idea, too. Remember, Jesus went to the mountain to pray. So his time in prayer has been long. So if you're kind of thinking your 10-minute prayer was really good, try a couple hours, maybe more. Actually, the more you get into prayer, the more you get entrenched, the more you get just completely gone. I remember doing that in school, and I thought, my gosh, we've got to pray an hour a day. Are you kidding me? What am I going to say? So you hit the 20-minute mark, and you're like, okay, I got past that one. Let's go 30 minutes tomorrow. And you can do 30 minutes. You go, okay. Oh, that's interesting. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you're praying along, and all of a sudden, you're like, an hour and a half. Oh, I can't. I can do it. Why? Because I got rid of all the distractions and I spent time with God. Intense time. Again, I always have that phrase, I really don't have a quiet time in my life. Have you ever really had a quiet time? Serious? When you're spending time with Jesus and everything, is it quiet? No, it gets loud at times. It gets exciting. There's praise. There's joy. There's issues where all of a sudden he's working you through issues in your life. And it gets a little loud. And it's great. You say the word praise the Lord. Can you just say it passively? No. You know, some of and different critics have said that Jesus never really walked on the water, but he was close. You think about that logic a little bit. We know this is not covered in Mark, but we notice that Peter wanted to be get out in the water because he wants to be like his rabbi Jesus. So the automatic here's a fisherman, right? Guy knows that you can't be buoyant on the top of water. You also notice another thing too. If Jesus was on the land and they were close to the land, and all Jesus had to do is walk out, how in the world did a fisherman like Peter drown, almost drown when he's up close to the shore? Have you ever thought that? When these critics turn around and say, oh, you know, they were right next to... Really? How did this fisherman in ankle-deep water drown? Ridiculous. It's not what the text said. It said he walked on the water. 
So what is Jesus trying to communicate to his disciples about walking on water? What was he showing them when he multiplied the bread and the fish to the great crowd? What's he trying to teach these men? What's he trying to teach us? I love Job 9.1.8. Job is going to describe God, and let's see how this looks. And Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wishes to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Walked on water. Another one, Psalm 77, 16 through 19. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid, and indeed the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, and skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side, and the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Your footprints were unseen. So who walks on water? God. What was Jesus trying to explain and teach these guys they desperately needed? He is God. He walks on water. Let's take a look. 49, we keep moving our text. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. They screamed is actually really the term, which is interesting. They screamed. For they saw him and were terrified. I'm thinking in my mind, what in the world is going on in these minds? Mind. Man's mind. I'll get that right. A ghost. (laughs) Where'd this come from? Okay, their thoughts are driven by the superstitions of the sea, things that they grew up hearing and understanding. They're fishermen. This, this is just what this sea has been explained to them. The sea was seen as a place or an abyss of evil. It was a dark place where demons worked. Even the god Baal had territory over it in traditional stories And again, for these men, this was not something that they were expecting. They have never seen Jesus walk on water before, and they're sitting there working hard. They're exhausted. And all of a sudden, there's someone walking on the water. So what's the first thing you're going to think of? Your superstition is going to be the top piece. They had never seen him walk on water before, and as fishermen, the old stories were coming true. It's a ghost. Note that all of those in the boat saw Jesus at the exact same time. So this isn't one person having a psychotic mode going on. They're all aware. So it's not some isolated event. That's huge and key. Another lesson, look at Jesus' response. Cue in. Lesson again. Verse 50. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. When Jesus spoke to them, it brought calm. Because what? 
It's a familiar voice, a voice they've learned to know. He gives them a positive command to be encouraged, to be of good cheer. He gives a second command to be not afraid. That is a command. That's not, if you feel comfortable, if you can, go ahead and don't be, no. There's no reason to be afraid. How can you be of good cheer and not be afraid? It's all about who Jesus is. In the middle, Jesus says, it is I. Better understood, and you guys are all cue in on this one, I am. Who else said I am? God did as he was revealing himself as Moses is trying to understand and figure out what's going on. He's sitting there saying, well, okay, God, you want me to go to Pharaoh, so when I get to Pharaoh, who do I say sent me? What did God say? I am. Is Jesus God? Basically, men, you're in the presence of the Creator God, and you know this because you saw Him walk on water. You remember that He created from very little all that was needed to feed the crowd. You remember back the time that you were convinced that you were going to die in a boat and Jesus was asleep, and with a word, He calmed the sea. And they asked the question, Who is it that the wind and the waves obey its God. They struggled to understand that the man standing before them was God. I feel that we as Christians many times come to the same conclusion. We do not see Jesus as being God. We don't run to him as we should, nor do we follow or obey him as we should. We see more the man than the creator. And how many times do we meditate on the reality that Jesus is God? That God lived among us. That he was crucified on the cross to take away our sins, died and buried, yet raised from the dead, conquering the penalty of sin by having it placed on himself while we receive his righteousness. After being seen by hundreds, he returned to heaven to full glory, being God. Do we see him on the throne now? Or do we just see him as a man Jesus shows his power over the elements when in verse 51 he says, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Again, mind blown. Why was their mind blown? There's so much in this text. It's amazing. Verse 52, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They missed the lesson that Jesus was God when he fed the crowd. They didn't get it. They didn't put the pieces together. They're moving along too fast. I mean, something I've been working on has not been easy. Slow down. Stop being so much in a rush and a hurried life. Do I spend enough time just quiet before God so I can listen to Him? I mean, if you're going through it at 200 miles an hour, when are you going to have any time you stop and even hear God? Well, I don't understand what God wants me to do in life. Have you ever been quiet enough, long enough to be able to hear? So I've said before, there's no way I can sit and pray for five minutes and get anything done. You're kidding me. Five minutes, I'm still spinning in the brain. I'm still at 800 miles an hour going everywhere else but... 
10 minutes. Nah, still going on. I'm still spinning all over the place. My mind is racing all of it. Have you ever gone through the time you're praying and all of a sudden you're left turn and you're, oh, what am I thinking about? Sorry, God. I, I'm <clears throat> back to you, sir. I, I apologize. I'm wow. Where did I go with that? I was just talking with God and now I'm okay. Okay. F- give me 15 minutes. Am I going to be good with that? Mm-mm. I found 15 minutes. That's my minimum just to get shut up on the inside. I got a lot of arguments going on inside, and I got a lot of things going on. It takes 15 minutes to shut down. Then if I'm going to do a 20-minute prayer, then I'm really five minutes I'm finally settled and having a contiguous conversation with God. Five minutes? No. Ten minutes? No. Fifteen? Uh-uh. Twenty? I get five. What do you need to do? So they missed the lesson of feeding the crowd. They missed it so much. Remember how many baskets were there filled up for them so they can eat? Twelve. How many disciples? Twelve. Kind of a pointed lesson. Did they get it? Nope. What was still occurring in these men? What was going on in their hearts? Why was it hardened? They were in a state of being spiritually unperceptive. Do you and I look at that a lot of times? That we're spiritually unperceptive? We're not getting it. Paul said these men were still disciples of Jesus and would still continue to grow. How many times do you feel that we just don't get it? We feel that we've got hardened hearts. It's just not getting in. Did these men ever get it? Yes. We see them growing throughout the Gospels and we see them growing in Acts and the letters. They may have scattered at one point, but they lived out their lives fully surrendered to Jesus, their rabbi, their creator. You know, Jesus desires for us all to be growing to know him more each day. To follow our rabbi, to be like our rabbi Jesus, and to do the work of our rabbi Jesus. That's where we started three weeks ago. What are we going to do? What lessons will we pull away from this and apply to our life? Slow down long enough to make it active. See, the Word of God becomes active and living in our life when we do what? We appropriate it and execute it in our life. We make it run. Again, years ago I kept asking high school students and everything, you know, what have you been reading in the Bible? Come on, if you've been a Christian long enough, you can give me hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of stuff that you're reading years ago. So change the question. Because you've been in the Word this week, what's changing? Because if you're honestly, seriously in the Word, it is going to change you. You're becoming to be morphed into Christ's likeness. You're being changed. You're being transformed. There's a difference. Why did these men not get this? They were too hurried. Moving too fast. They didn't even pick up the biggest lesson that was sitting right in their face. Twelve baskets. They saw the little biscuits, the little fish, and they saw the multitude fed, and they didn't get it. Are we doing the same thing? Stop. 
spend time with God, quiet time, isolated time, and learn from Him. We had many lessons. What are we going to do with them? Again, follow your rabbi, be like your rabbi, and do the work of your rabbi Jesus. Front and center him. Let's pray. Father, we know that there are so many times in our life we can look back, and we know they're going to be in the front of the times that we've got storms raging, issues raging, a tremendous amount of distractions. The blatant lessons that you lay before us are as blatant as the 12 baskets, and we don't see it. Why? Because we're looking for man's response, man's real answer to these things? Or are we looking at you? Do we see you, Jesus, as God, or we just see you as a man and we just kind of like follow you? Or do we honor and respect and glorify you because you are God? You've created all things, you sustain all things, you walk on water. Man does not do that. Man cannot do that. God, you are the only one. Teach us great lessons again from the text of Scripture. May they not be isolated, but may we take these deep down into our life to transform where we are and what we're growing through. Show us your greatness. Let us love you greatly as God and nothing else. Again, we praise you for loving us, caring for us, dying for us, and now, much greater, our King on the throne. Thank you, Jesus, for loving and restoring us to you. In Jesus Christ, amen.